0: We are looking at Exodus chapter 10, beginning in verse 21, and we're going to read down to verse 29. Exodus 10, 21 to 29. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven. And there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, "'Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind.' But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burn offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, Whenever Anna and I have vacationed at her grandmother's home at the beach, one of my favorite things is to sleep in, because I so rarely get to sleep in, and and she, her grandmother has those blackout blinds, and they're amazing because no light gets in the room, and they're only amazing until you have to get up in the middle of the night to use the restroom, and you're kicking your shin against a bedpost, and then they're not amazing. That's the closest thing I have ever experienced to being in thick, felt darkness. You literally cannot see anything in front of you. And it's a bit terrifying. You don't know which direction you're in. You feel spun around. You have no idea where you are. Now, most of us have never been in a situation where we've been in any kind of darkness like that. Um, And so it's hard for us to understand when we come to the ninth plague, why this was such a severe judgment plague. There is, in one sense... In in a sense, there is an exponential increase in the plagues until that 10th plague, the death of the firstborn son, which is, of course, the most grievous and the one that God ultimately uses to cause Pharaoh to drive his people out of the land. But the 10th plague, like the first plague, is very interesting because we're going to see tonight it has echoes of creation coming undone. It has echoes of what was a blessing becoming a curse, God undoing creational blessing in bringing this judgment on Egypt and in showing them that he was the God who had power over every aspect of creation. I want us to consider just three things tonight when we look at this. First, I want us to consider darkness over the land. Then I want us to consider darkness over the heart. And then I want us to consider darkness over the sun, darkness over the land, darkness over the heart, and then darkness over the sun. Well. What you may not know, and we talked about this in the first plague, is that all of the plagues are God entering into divine conflict with the evil one by entering into conflict with the gods, the idols of the Egyptians. We saw that as we considered the gods of the Nile and what God did in that first plague. And then every other plague, God is entering into judgment with all the various gods. And they had a lot of gods. They had gods for everything. And the majority of their gods, the majority of their idols, had to do with creation, the things around them, where they got their sustenance, where they got their provisions, where where they found their comforts and their securities. and, And they attributed to inanimate objects deification. And when we come to this ninth plague and the last of the creational plagues, before the death of the firstborn, it we would help us to understand that that really um, God is striking a blow at the the God of the Egyptians who was the supreme God Amen Ra. Now you've probably heard that name. That was the God that they they wrote songs about and they sang songs to and they offered homage to and they believed that he was the supreme ruler that all things had come from him that he was a self sustaining God and the sun was the emanation of amun Ra. Because the sun gave light and warmth, it caused uh, it caused growth. It it was it was the most important next to the Nile of all of the sustenance providing aspects of creation. And Pharaoh was himself considered the son of Amun re When he died, the next pharaoh would be considered the son of Ammon Re. He was worshipped by the people. He received that worship as a sort of an avatar of Ammon re And so you can understand now why this would be significant. What is the one thing that God could do to show that he is sovereign over all things and that he is going to be victorious no matter what, except strike a severe blow to the supreme idol God of the Egyptians? Phil Reichen put it this way, like most Egyptians, Pharaoh was a sun worshiper, more than that, he was regarded as the son of Ray, the personal embodiment of the sol- solar deity. Egypt's king was Egypt's God. As the incarnation of Amun-Ray, he maintained the cosmic order. That's why this is so significant, because if God can darken the sun so that there is no light, if God can remove all the light from the heavenly bodies and cast a great darkness over Egypt, that then then Pharaoh himself cannot say that he is really and truly the son of this God and that God is shown to be no God at all. What's interesting here is the Egyptian magicians cannot replicate this plague. Remember, there were those replications where, ironically, they were just making the plague worse by (coughs) heaping up more frogs and whatnot. But with this plague, this is something that God alone can do. Um, another writer puts it this way at the kernel of the civilization stands a special relation between the divine father figure of the sun god ruler of creation and his solidarity offspring on earth, the reigning king in Egypt. Within the reign of each king, he alone appears as the living representative of the sun god on earth and enjoys unique sovereignty in the practical exercise of power here. God is asserting his sovereign power. And God is telling Pharaoh in no uncertain terms, I can do everything. I can even remove all of the light from every place. Now, why would that be such a severely felt plague? Now, here, remember the language is that God was going to, to put a darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt, a thick darkness. Well, that would be significant because in absolute darkness, you can't go out and find food. You can't do your everyday activities. You can't see anything around you. You can't interact with others. You're defenseless. Someone could have come and assassinated Pharaoh at that point. That There's an absolute helplessness when all of the light is taken out of the way. And so no doubt there would have been extreme desperation, this three-day period, and not knowing when is this going to be over. Is this going to continue for months? Um. There would have been an extreme sense of fear and desperation. But God is not just exercising sovereignty over Pharaoh and over Amun-Re. He is also, as we noted last time, he is also uh, sending creational curses. He's sending creational curses. Remember, the Bible opens, doesn't it, with those words um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was out form and void and darkness was over the face of the waters. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God said in that first creative fiat, God said, let there be light. What's the first act of blessing? It's the light that God causes to break into the darkness. Now, he does that because he's going to want his glory in creation to be on display. He does that because once he puts man in that habitable world, he wants him to see his glory, right? The psalmist says the earth is full of the glory of the Lord, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows forth his handiwork here. God is taking away the blessing in a sense. He's he's saying instead of blessing, there's cursing. that, That what you deserve is cursing. So here in the ninth plague, God is calling our minds back to the very first creative fiat. Listen to this. One writer put it this way. I thought this was so helpful. The plagues are creation reversals. Animals harm rather than serve humanity. Light ceases and darkness takes over. Waters become a source of death rather than life. The climax of Genesis 1 is the creation of humans on the last day, whereas the climax of the plagues is the destruction of human beings In the last plague. Isn't that interesting? He creates out of waters. First plague. He turns the waters into blood. Ninth plague. He brings light into darkness. He takes the light away and he sends darkness. And that final plague, the crown of creation, human beings, image bearers of God. And he is going to strike at that very vital point in bringing this judgment curse on the enemies, on his enemies and the enemies of his people. Um, That writer goes on to say each plague is a reminder of the supreme power of God who holds chaos at bay. But who, if he chooses, will step aside and allow chaos to plague his enemies. He will step aside and he will allow chaos to plague his enemies. Darkness, in this sense, as a curse denotes the removal of any of God's bountiful, blessed presence. Now, this is why Jesus is going to call eternal punishment outer darkness. That's the same reference. That's, that's what this is a prelude to, that, that while hell is more than outer darkness, it is not less than that. That is the figure that Jesus is going to use when he speaks about eternal punishment. They'll be cast into outer darkness away from the blessed presence of God, away from his sustaining grace and mercy, away from his bounty and his goodness. Um, Remember, we talked in our sermon on the first plague about the fact that God is accomplishing so many different things by sending the plagues. Yes, he's judging Egypt, but he's also calling Pharaoh to repentance, isn't he? He's giving him opportunities to recognize who he is. He's giving him opportunities. Think about this. When the darkness was removed, Pharaoh should have fell on his face and worshiped. When he again saw the bounty of God, the goodness of God, the provisions of God, he should have said Yahweh is the true and living God. He should have said this is the only God. You know, when God turned Nebuchadnezzar into a beast, he finally acknowledged who God was. That that would have been the right thing for Pharaoh to see when God restored the light and the creation blessing. But secondly, we're going to see darkness over the heart. Now, if we had gone through all the plagues and we had given careful consideration to the way Pharaoh responds to each of them, remember, as you've read through the plagues, no doubt in your life, Mm -hmm. that that. Pharaoh is always sort of bargaining with Moses. Well, well, I'll let you and Aaron go worship, or I'll let the people go, but you can't take this with you. Um, uh, Charles Spurgeon focuses in on verse 26. Notice verse 26. Um, Moses says, our livestock must go with us. Not a hoof should be left behind. Spurgeon has a sermon called Not a Hoof Left Behind. And this is what only Spurgeon can do that. And this is what he says. There shall not be a hoof left behind. He said in Exodus 8.25, in Exodus 8.25, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to the Lord in his land. That's Pharaoh's first proposal. Pharaoh's saying, I'll set the terms. I'll be the, the maker of the art of the deal. You can go and sacrifice and then return. And then Spurgeon says, we find him saying at the 28th verse, I'll let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Pharaoh then makes another provision. I'll control the outcome. You'll do what I say. And then Scourgeon points out that that was the second of Pharaoh's compromises. Then he says in the 10th chapter, in the 8th verse, you have the third. He says, go serve the Lord your God, but who are they that, that shall go? He adds, go now, you men, and serve the Lord. And Pharaoh's fourth and last proposal is in the 24th verse of the 10th chapter, when he says, only let your flocks and herds stay. You see, there's this incremental Pharaoh wants to control the outcome. And that means there's darkness over his heart. Anytime we want to control the outcome rather than prostrate ourselves before God, there is darkness over the heart every time. We kick against God calling us to repentance. There is darkness over the heart. You know, the darkness of the land really was, in that sense, a symbol of the darkness in Pharaoh's heart. Um, The Apostle John is going to pick up on those themes, right? Light and darkness. A lot. And he's going to pick up on what the Lord Jesus says, that men love darkness rather than light. They won't come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. And yet, remember, Jesus says that he came into the world as the light of the world to give light to those that sit in darkness, that he said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's that's the point. What is what is Jesus doing here? What is Yahweh doing here? He is he is saying to Pharaoh by this plague, your heart is full of darkness. Now, that's not just true for Pharaoh. That's true for every one of us by nature. Every one of us have filthy, dark, black hearts by nature. I remember many, many years ago, I was in seminary, and a uh, uh, Egyptian, American, now Egyptian missionary, Ani Zaka, was speaking, and and he was talking about how the evangelism he had witnessed so much was sort of this, you know, just give Jesus your heart. And I'll never forget him getting so loud and worked up and he said jesus doesn't want your filthy black heart he wants to give you a new one and that's that's the point here it's not just pharaoh it's me it's you by nature we have hearts that have been darkened by sin and darkness and the love of the world and wickedness and things that are evil that god has not given us to act on and so when we read a plague like this we ought to come away and say. Lord, I need the light of the gospel shown into my heart. Pharaoh is going to harden his heart, isn't he? Pharaoh, notice verse 27, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. And then notice the hatred. Notice how that darkness manifests itself now finally toward God's messenger and toward God's people. Pharaoh said to Moses, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. From the day you see my face, you shall die. Now, to this point, Pharaoh has entertained, but now Pharaoh shows exactly what's in his heart, exactly what he thinks about God's people, and in how he speaks to Moses, exactly what he thinks about God. You know, there are no men, women, boys, or girls who are just kind of estranged from God. The language that Paul uses in Romans and Ephesians is that by nature we are enemies. We are enemies. We are, we, we are hostile. We are we 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 hate God, Paul says in Titus by nature. Haters of one another and haters of God. That's hard for people to come to terms with. You know, I I think anytime any of us really truly have come to Christ, it's because we've realized I'm not just just outside. I am actively in opposition to God. Now, no one's sitting around in their hearts and saying, ah, I really hate God. Some people do not many people, but our lives reflect that Pharaoh's words reflected his treatment of God's people reflected the fact that he wants to oppress them affected. Why is Pharaoh so intent? On oppressing God's people. Yes, it's for production. Yes, it's for free labor. Yes, it's for everything that he wanted evil out of it. But ultimately, he was oppressing God's people because he wanted to oppress God himself. Somebody said to me many years ago, I'd never thought about this. The reason people want to slaughter babies in the womb and the reason why people oppress a people group with a different ethnicity than them is because they are both made in the image of God and men hate God so much they want to eradicate and oppress his image. That's very potent. Don't miss that. Pharaoh stands out here as a, an example of the pinnacle of what man is by nature in relation to God. And even that severe plague will not cure his heart now um what what should this do for us well, it should do several things one i need to come to terms with the fact and i need to go to the lord and say lord my heart by nature is dark i love darkness far too much and i need the light of the gospel i love the way the apostle paul In second Corinthians chapter four, when he's speaking about what happens to a man or a woman, a boy or a girl when they're converted, he says it's the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what is conversion? Conversion is the same God who said, let there be light in creation, shining that light into the darkness speaking a word of redemptive light into the souls of his people so that they can see his glory in the face of Jesus. Now, I mentioned that there is darkness over the land, and I mentioned that there is darkness over the heart of man. And then finally, I want us to consider darkness over the sun. Um, Before I do get to the cross and how this is manifested there. I want to note this. That there is a very close connection in scripture. Between the, plague, the plagues on Egypt. And the covenant curses that God promised Israel at the end of Deuteronomy. There's a very close connection. Now in the plagues on Egypt. Remember Egypt had darkness. But Israel had light. God made that differentiation. But when we come to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, there is no differentiation on Israel. In, in Deuteronomy 27, 28, verses 28 and 29, Deuteronomy 27, verses 28 and 29, we read, The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of heart. You shall grope at noonday as a blind man gropes in darkness. You shall not prosper in your ways. You shall only be oppressed and plundered continually, and no one can save you. So if my people will continue in covenant disobedience, there is going to be darkness. That is meant to call to mind the plague on Egypt. And God is warning his people at that point in in the Mosaic economy. Think of this. He's saying, I'm going to do the same thing to you I did to Egypt. And then, as I already noted, when we come into the gospel records, that Jesus speaks of eternal punishment as outer darkness. And then ultimately, and this is the most glorious manifestation, when Jesus hangs on the cross, the sun is darkened. Why? Why? Why does that matter so much? Why? Why is that little historical detail so important? Because this is the God of creation hanging on the cross. This is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, saying, let there be light nailed to a tree. This is the God that took all of the light out of the land of Egypt to put the Egyptians into thick darkness. But ultimately, in order to remove the darkness from the hearts of men and women like us and boys and girls to remove that darkness, he had to fall under the wrath of God And the sun being darkened as he hung on the cross was a symbol, a sign that he was taking the covenant curses, that he was taking the plagues. That's what that's saying. If the darkness is going to be removed from my heart, the sun must be covered in darkness. He must be forsaken by his father. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is essentially saying, why have you cast me into outer darkness? Jesus suffered hell on the cross. He didn't go to hell. He's endured the infinite and eternal wrath of God in his holy, pure soul because of the darkness of our hearts. That's why the sun was darkened. And until we see that really and truly, we will never we will never see our need for the light. We will never come to the light. We will never experience our souls flooded with light until I understand it's the darkness of my soul that caused him to suffer in the way that he did. I want to read this to you. Phil Reichen again says, In order to bring us into his light, Jesus had to enter our darkness. The Bible explains that when Jesus was crucified, darkness was over the whole land. This darkness was spiritually significant. It showed that Jesus had taken upon him the guilt of, of all of our sin, and therefore he was under the dark curse God reserved for his enemies. Jesus then went into the ground where he remained in the deepest of darkness for three days in the suffering. Isn't that interesting? Three days of darkness in the plague, three days of Jesus suffering under the darkness of God's wrath. Isn't that fascinating? Reichen says, but on the third day he was raised again in a body dazzling with the light of God's glory. Now everyone who comes to Christ comes into the light of this salvation. For it's the God who said, let the light shine out of darkness that has made light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Um, When we recognize our own love for darkness and evil things. We need to cast our eyes on Christ crucified. We need to see what he endured for us. We need to go back to the foot of the cross. We've got to pour out our hearts to him and say, Lord, I am no different than Pharaoh by nature. And I deserve eternal judgment. And and I deserve to be cast into outer darkness. But Lord, you have taken the judgment that I deserve. And I trust that you have removed the curse by becoming a curse for me. So that now, in Christ, there is only blessing for the people of God. There is only light, and there is only blessing. You know, when, when God brings us out of our darkness, when he brings us to Christ, he brings us into a world of light, where we love the light. We, we hate that we want to do things wrong. We love what is true and pure and good and right. We love what brings God glory. We, we want to love the things he loves. We want to, as John says, walk in the light as he is in the light. I hope that you'll be encouraged tonight as we consider these things that we won't just look at these plagues as something that happened over there to those people at that time, but that we'll see the spiritual benefit that these have for us. God is calling you wherever you are tonight And I don't know if you're living in darkness. Wherever you are, God is calling you out into the light. He is saying, come to the light. Let your deeds be exposed. I have taken the judgment. I have taken the darkness on myself. And I'm here to give you my light, that you may have the light of life. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do acknowledge that we, by nature, love darkness. We acknowledge that that's true of all men and that we are no different. We thank you that you have given us even this portion of scripture and that you worked with a creational judgment sign such as darkness in order to help us to understand in the rest of the scriptures how it is that you have come and you have laid down your life, Lord Jesus, in order to give us light Oh, God, would you shine brightly the light of the gospel into every heart of everyone present here? Would you make us to live as children of light? Would you make us to be a people who walk in the light? We thank you and praise you, Lord Jesus, that you endured what you endured on the cross in our place for our good. And so we pray that you would make your atoning sacrifice to work powerfully in us, purifying us, and giving to us the light of life. We pray these things in your name. Amen.